God is good. Amen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 13. Anything else? Anyone have a testimony or Bible question? Anything I have forgotten? Matthew chapter 13. Sunday we'll be looking at Obadiah. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to make a trip to Petra. And about a, I think I have about 147 photos of Petra. But I, I, most of them I got from an organization that we... I got permission to use their photographs. And so I'll show you some of those Sunday during the announcement time and before and after service. We won't do it during the preaching and the singing, but we're looking forward to that uh, wonderful little book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Today we're in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13, and we're beginning in verse 47, 47 through 52, 15, 47, or... 13, 47 to 52, I apologize, chapter 13. And I'm going to read a few verses, then I'm going to have you stand and read a couple more. It says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Stand with me and we'll read verses 51 and 52. And if you can't stand, that's okay. Uh, we know that you love the word, so just relax. Here in verse 51, we're looking at another small parable. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. And then he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed into the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These are the 14th and 15th parables, the Galilean parables. We're looking at uh, the Galilean parables first, and we'll look at the Jerusalem parables and the Prean parables later. These two parables, the large net and the householder's treasure. Um, remember, Matthew is the author, the writer here. And of course, God is the author because he inspired Matthew. Matthew's name meant gift of Jehovah. His Hebrew name was Levi. God had him change it. The Lord had him change it to Matthew. And this is a unique parable. There's no other parallel passage to this, so this stands alone. We know that the first four parables in Matthew 13 expound on the external aspects of the kingdom, and he's telling those by the seashore. Now he moves into a house, and he talks about the internal aspect, or the external aspect, <laughs> internal aspects, excuse me, of the kingdom in this house. He told the story so that we can just realize that one day God will deal with all the evil in the kingdom. Now, Matthew deals with the kingdom a lot. There's a lot of talk about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, of course, a spiritual kingdom. One day we will have a literal thousand-year kingdom. But this really can be taught synonymously with the church. So when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the church, so don't be confused. The church is part of the kingdom of God. And one day, of course, we know the church will be taken up, and then we'll have a thousand-year kingdom on the earth. But he's teaching these kingdom principles. And one of the principles of the kingdom is that there'll be a separation. 
The word sever here is the same, uh, it's the same Greek words translated separate. So God is going to separate the good from the bad. And we know that uh, <clears throat> the Pharisees taught extreme separation, which was legalistic and it harmed people. And while we are supposed to separate from the world and come out from them and be different than the world, the extremism, the isolation of the Pharisees was not healthy. But God is teaching here, the Lord Jesus is teaching here, the future separation of evil from good. And we should, during this time, we talked about this election season and all the uproar and all the concern in our hearts. We can rest assured that God is going to divide one day the good from the evil. He will take all the evil in the kingdom and deal with it. There will be a final separation. And the angels are the ones that are given this task to separate. And we will look at this later, but the righteous and the wicked will ultimately be separated. And I'm thankful for that. The kingdom of heaven is like a great big net. Now, remember, the disciples were fishermen. Many of them were. Peter, James, John uh, were fishermen. And they understood the object lesson here because they would go out fishing. They'd take these two boats and they would split up and they'd have a big net and they'd weight down one end of the net and drop it way down and they'd move these boats around and then they'd close the net and catch a lot of fish. You know the story, they caught one time 153 fish, or fishes I should say. Fishes has to do with more than one species. Fish just means one species. And they caught 153 fishes. And, and then they would get to shore and they understood not only the net concept, but they'd understood the, they'd get to, um, shore and then they divide the fish and there were certain fish they couldn't eat because the law would forbid it so they would uh, divide the fish and separate the good from the bad so the object lesson here for them is simple they understood the concept and Jesus is saying that he's going to separate the good and deal with the bad and of course the bad would go to a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth so from that perspective living in the times we're living in we know that everything is going to be dealt with. I remind people all the time, and I will say this for the next month, every knee one day will bow. The skeptics and the scoffers and the belittlers of Christians will one day have to bow, won't they? Hopefully they'll bow and repent of their sins and trust Jesus before it's too late. That's what our hope should be. Sometimes our old nature says, boy, that guy's going to burn in hell, and I'm glad. And we think, wait a minute. That's not compassion. Jesus showed compassion for the worst of people. Jesus is even kind to Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. He could have treated him badly, but he didn't. Judas was a thief. He was stealing money. We, knew, we know that. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, there's nothing really good about Judas Iscariot, and yet how did Jesus treat him? So during this election season... Don't treat people badly because they disagree with you. Remember, they are of their father, the devil. And people who, uh, and I'm not talking about political parties. I'm talking about people who believe it's okay to kill babies. They certainly don't have any idea about salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, they wouldn't believe that if they'd been taught anything at all. So don't expect the world to agree with our viewpoint. Christians is a certain voting block of Christians that are pretty consistent 
in voting for life and voting for certain other things. I've told you before, I'm not going to tell you how I vote, but you probably can figure it out pretty easy because I, I vote for Israel, I vote for life, I, I, I vote, you know, for, for several other things that I believe we can clearly teach in Scripture. But when we get frustrated with people we don't agree with, we have to remember God's in control and he holds the king's heart in his hand. And even if we get a leader who we feel, oh my word, we can't handle this leader, God can handle him. And God can have him sign legislation that may end up being good. So I just have to trust in the Lord. And when I preach to you, I'm preaching to myself as well because I struggle sometimes as well. And uh, so we, we keep the things in perspective. But here we learn in this passage that God is going to separate the good and cast everything else away. So when we look at a world that's evil, we know one day God's going to separate the evil. So we don't need to panic and get upset right now. We know in Scripture the sea consistently represents the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, the word sea. Uh, the oceans compared to the people of the world. So verse 49 says, So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, shall cast them into the fire. We, um, I was going to point out, I uh, forgot what I was going to say, but the uh, sea, or the end of the world, I, I don't know where I got the word sea, but I was going to make a comment on that, lost my place. But the angels um, would sever, separate the good from the evil. And the Greek word there is aphorizo. It means uh, from the horizon. You know that word. So there's definitely going to be a separation. When you look from one end of the horizon to the other, there's going to be a great separation of sinful people from good people. And it says here, he would separate the, separate the wicked from among them, from the midst of the just. The wicked are in our midst. And his angels, the Bible, his ministers are angels. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll operate with power. And, of course, we he read here about the flame of fire. And that should cause us really to be concerned for the people of the world rather than look forward to this great separation in the judgment. We're concerned for them. Now, let's go over to Revelation chapter 20 for a moment. Is I want to show you the chronology of events. I'll deviate from these notes. You can read those when you get home. But Revelation chapter 20 and verses 4 and 5. We know that <clears throat> Satan will be bound up for a thousand years. It says in verse 1, I saw the angel come down from heaven having a key to the boss pit. And the Bible said he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So Satan's bound for the millennial kingdom. And it's going to be a perfect rule. God's going to rule over sinners. And we will help rule with him and reign with him. Uh, I don't know what we'll do, but the Bible talks about us ruling and reigning with him. It'll cast him into the bottom's pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and then after that, he'll be loose for a little season. And Satan's going to go out and he's going to deceive the nations into another big battle, you know. We had the tribulation battle, but this will be another great battle. And we know there's two resurrections. And the first resurrection is, is here that uh, verse 4 talks about the souls in that were beheaded. Uh, for That's the second resurrection. I got ahead of myself. 
the, the people who were beheaded for Christ's sake and had not worshipped the beast. Um, and, and they're going to reign for a thousand years. But look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Um, on such the second death hath no power. So God's going to raise eventually all the wicked of all ages. And we drop down to verse 11. And he's going to judge them. Look what it says. And I saw the great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead, verse 13. And the Bible says, verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. See, I will have one death, a physical death, but I'll not have a second death. I'll not die again. Neither will you if, you're, if you know the Lord. But people of the world who have a physical death will all be resurrected. And they'll stand at this great white throne judgment. And they'll be judged and they'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire. So it says he, d- death and hell are raised. People from the sea are raised. There's no escaping God. They're all going to stand before him. And so when we get upset about our wicked world, we take comfort in the fact that God's in control. And we know that people will either get saved or they'll go to hell. And it's, that, that should cause us to have compassion rather than to gloat over the fact that they're lost. Because that doesn't please the Lord at all. So here, uh, this parable in Matthew 13 is often compared to the wheat and tares. However, the parable of the wheat and tares emphasizes the devil planting good next to evil. This parable really emphasizes the casting away of evil. See, we're citizens of heaven. We're not mentioned in verse 50. We're not mentioned because we're not part of the world. And, and so the kingdom is, 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 is going to be separated, good and evil. God's going to take care of that. Right now, we, we may have, you know, evil in the church. And, you know, Scripture teaches there will always be tares amongst the wheat. There will always be wolves amongst the sheep. So don't be surprised if someday one of our church members comes forward and says, I need to be saved. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Don't be surprised if sometimes the preaching is offensive to people who don't know the Lord. In fact, preaching can be offensive to weak Christians as well. They don't understand spiritual things. I've been confronted in this community. I was confronted about two weeks ago. A guy said, well, I left the church because the pastor said this. And I'm sitting there with this man in a restaurant. He asked me to join him. And I'm thinking he left the church and the pastor was right in what he preached. And I'm thinking, how do I tell this guy that, you know? Because people are offended and, and easily it, it tripped up. And, and so we have to be careful that we um, are patient with people, win them to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and pray for our church. Because we will have people come in here that may appear to be believers and may not believe. And I don't know of anyone like that, but God does. You know, he knows every heart. He knows who's pretending and who's sincere. And so there's going to be a separation. Simple truth. And, and uh, it's, he gave the great object lesson that the fishermen understood when they separated the good fish from the bad. 
Then verse 51 and 52, we have this parable of the householder. Jesus saith unto them, have you understood all these things? And they said unto him, yea, Lord. But their continual, continual questioning of the Lord makes you realize they really didn't understand a lot of things they acted like they understood. Sometimes, you know, he would answer them, they'd act like they understood, and then he'd go on to explain more because he knew their hearts knew they didn't understand. So then he says to them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder. Now, these are not the scribes we often talk about. There were scribes of Pharisees and there were scribes of Sadducees. These were basically lawyers. The Greek word is grammaticus. We get our word grammar from that. They were guys who knew how to write and knew how to prepare documents. They were basically the lawyers of the day. But Jesus is talking about scribes who understood his kingdom. These were scribes he's referring to like the scribes of Ezra's day that were godly men. You know, there were people, and, and we seem to lose sight of that, there were people who gave their entire life to writing carefully Scripture. You know, they lived, the Essenes were like hermits. They lived away from everybody, and they spent their whole life dedicated to writing out Scripture. They wanted every jot and tittle to be correct. So Jesus is not referring to the Pharisees or the Sadducees here, Sadducees here but to the scribes um, which, were, which were instructed, they understood the kingdom. And the idea of old and new here, these were true scribes, and, and the old and new, the new observations and the old experiences, they would bring these uh, issues to the forefront and teach them. And he said... Um, these, these are, are valuable scribes. These are people who teach um, the word and teach it accurately. And so uh, it's important for us to remember old truths and sometimes learn new truths. It, sometimes we have a tendency to never want to change. We've been taught something our whole life, and then a pastor, not me necessarily, I'm not saying that, but then a pastor will get up and teach something you've never heard and you're right away, so I ain't going to look to listen to him. I'm not going to listen to him because I'm not going to change. And sometimes pastors try to sensationalize by coming up with some new doctrine that's not in the Bible. We understand that. But I'm talking about just simple Bible truth. And you hear it and you don't want to accept it because it's different. You know. I mean, we do so many things in today's church that are foreign to the scriptural way they did things back then. We built all these big buildings. You know, we have lots of things they didn't have. They met in houses. They, they didn't think about building great big buildings and spending all their money on buildings. They sent out missionaries. <laughs> missionaries took care of the poor. The church was, we're, we're against socialism in our country, I understand that, but the church was socialistic in that they expected those who had more to give up some of what they had to take care of those who didn't have enough. And in that day, there wasn't a lot of food. There wasn't a lot of shelter. And so they asked people with money to give. And in the early church, remember, they, they would sell their lands and give all the money from the sale of the land to the church. And, and so, obviously, uh, we're not what the church was back then. And so when we go back sometimes and teach simple old principles that the church of Peter and Paul's day uh, live by, people look at you like, uh, that won't work today. And that's part of the problem in the church today. We're too concerned about appealing to the world. And we need to be more concerned about doing what is right. 
Our, the most important thing this church does is give to missions. Do you know that? Not, I love that you have a gym, that we have a gym, but that's not the most important thing. You know, God could care less. When we're raptured out, what we spent in helping people come to know the Lord around the world is the most important thing because those souls will go up as well. You know, but our buildings are left behind. And if the rapture took place tonight, the bank would take this building and who knows what would happen here. But all the investment in here comes to naught, right? I mean, I'm thankful that we have a roof overhead, a nice facility. So don't misunderstand me. But today's church is all about building buildings, programs, and it's not about building lives. So we've deviated. And so when a preacher gives something, teaches something you haven't heard before, listen to him and say, well, you know what? He's got a point there. Maybe we have gotten too, too much into this over here or this over there. And I don't know exactly what, but I, I know that I always love to hear new truths and old truths. And these scribes were able to share experiences, old treasure, and also new observations. You know, God's word never changes, but it's amazing how much more we learn. Uh, you think about people who had to pastor and preach hundreds of years ago, they didn't have commentaries. They didn't have sources, they didn't have computers. I can find out anything in my library. But if I didn't have a library, I would have had to have been a Greek and Hebrew scholar to do what I do today. But the library I have is what enables me to study the way I do and prepare. But think of preachers 150 years ago. All they had was a Greek New Testament and a Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes they didn't even have translations for the people in the pews. And so we have a different world. We're really spoiled. We're living in the best of times, but about to be in the worst of times, I guess. So here is the application. Um, we need to trust that God will carry out the final separation and judgment. We don't understand the main truth in the parable of the dragnet, and, and we can become but we can come we, we can become practical in our application. What were Peter, James, and John prior to following Jesus? You know the answer according to Matthew 4:18, they were fishermen. When Jesus called them, he called them to be, to be fishers of what? Fishers of men. Then I have a question here. And the question is, are we supposed to fulfill the Great Commission? That's a no-brainer, right? So I've decided that tonight, for the application, we needed to go over the Great Commission. So here is where I wanted to get to this teaching of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is given five times in Scripture. Five times. And I've listed these in chronological order. All right? So John is first chronologically. Now, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, but that's not the chronological order. John is the first time the commission was given. And here is the example of the Great Commission. The example. And this was in the upper room. And the verse in your Bible says that, uh, so send I you. And that's what goes in your fill in the blanks. But that's the first time Jesus gives the example. He set the example, didn't he? As the Father has sent, sent me, so send I you. So Jesus sets the example. And that's the first time the Great Commission is given. And then in Mark 16, 15, we have the command. It's a week later. 
A week later, um, and you know the Bible verse, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And this is what we'd say is exclamatory. It would deserve an exclamation mark. He didn't say, if you feel like going, this is a command. He didn't say, you know, when you get some spare time, you know, when you get off work. No, our entire purpose in life is to go. Not just once in a while. Our whole life should be about reaching people. You know, when you go into the barber shop, you have a chance to witness. If you don't have the opportunity, you can leave a track, maybe on a table or something. And uh, yeah, there's always opportunities. Carry tracks, carry a testament in your car, and look for opportunities. Because he didn't mince words here. He said, go, exclamatory. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the people you like. No, to every creature, to every person. Second time. The third time, he gives a strategy two weeks later. And this is kind of heavy, but you have it in your notes. It's an assuming participle. In other words, he assumed they were going. <laughs> you know, he, he set the example. He gave the command, and now he assumes they're going. Sad that we disappoint him. He, assumes, he assumed they were going. And, and that's the grammar here. And look what he says. He says to preach, to baptize, and to teach them all things. Matthew, and you know this passage, 28, 19, 20. So the third time is a strategy. And what is a strategy? You, you, you preach, give them the gospel. When they get saved, you baptize them, teach them all things. Baptist, and I shouldn't say just Baptist, but Christians are notorious for winning people to Jesus and ending right there the relationship. Well, I won one. Good job, Dan. You won one. What we should do is spend our lives pouring into one soul we lead to Christ. And that one soul can repeat that process in someone else's life. But we want to talk about numbers. We want to impress people. I've heard preachers say, well, we had so many saved in our church this week. And if that really is happening, that's wonderful. But there are times you go visit that church and you go in there and there's hardly anyone there and they're having all these people saved every week and you want to say, where are they? Follow up. We're not to just win people to Jesus. We're supposed to baptize them. That's sometimes kind of easy too. Not everybody gets saved gets baptized, but a lot of them do. But the next point there in the text is where we completely fail. We are supposed to teach them all things. Jesus spent three years with 12 guys. One of them was not even a believer. But we read how those 11 guys ended their lives. All but John were martyred. Talk about committed. He taught them. He discipled them. They were his disciples. And they went out after spending three years with Jesus and turned the world upside down. We're here today because of those 11 guys. They carried the gospel into Europe and Australia and all over Africa and Asia. I mean, thank God for it. They did what they were supposed to do. So he assumes they're going. He gives a strategy. Then in Luke 24, 40 days later, 40 days later, he gives the content of the gospel. The content. 
What is the content? Well, Luke spells it out, but 1 Corinthians really is clear, clearly lays it out where it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel how that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day. And Luke, he gives this. What is the content? Death, burial, resurrection. That was the content of the gospel. You know, we talk a lot about being saved and the sinner's prayer. We talk kids into it sometimes. I hope they're sincere. But the fact of the matter is, to the Jew, accepting that Jesus was the Messiah was what it was all about. They knew the Old Testament enough to know that if they accepted him as Messiah, they accepted him. Because they knew there were hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they looked for his coming. They didn't believe Jesus was the one. And so the disciples would preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, proving he was the Messiah. He fulfilled Psalm 110. He fulfilled Psalm 2. He fulfilled Isaiah 53. He fulfilled Isaiah 9-6. He fulfilled Genesis 3. He fulfilled all those Old Testament passages, those prophetic passages. He fulfilled them all. And so they went out and said, we were eyewitnesses. He's the one. He, was, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. That's the content. And sometimes we get caught up in all these phrases. And D.L. Moody once said, when someone walks the aisle to become a Christian, when are they saved? When they get down and pray a prayer? No. When in their heart they decide they're going to follow Jesus and they stepped out and came forward. You know, we want to we want to keep numbers and we want to keep count. And we want to, you know, put, uh, you know, keep the score. God takes care of all that. But here is the content of the gospel. Then finally, the geography of the gospel. Now, you know, this is, uh, you know, Acts 1.8, but you should receive power. And that's not authority. Matthew 28 was the word authority translated power. This is a Greek word dynamite. He said, you shall receive this explosive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall speak in tongues. No, he didn't say that. And you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be, what is it? Witnesses. That's, that's the sign of power on your life. Are you a witness? And, and he, he lays out the geography. He says, go to your city, your county, your area in the world. Now, how does a church do that? We have to send missionaries to take care of the world. But in these blanks, you should write your Jerusalem would be either Eastridge, Rossville, or Fort Oglethorpe, or Ringgold, wherever you live. Your, your county, Walker, Catoosa, Hamilton, whatever. A surrounding area, the tri-state area. I mean, we're in a unique place. We have three states right here. And then the world. So he, he gives a geography. So notice the five times he gives the gospel. He gives the gospel. He covers all the bases, doesn't he? In Acts chapter 8, he tells us we're empowered. He assumed we're going. He set the example. He gave the command. He assumed we were going. He tells us a content, and he tells us geography. It's everything we need. It's everything we need. Well, I don't witness because I don't know the Bible enough. Well, Andrew, you know, went and got his brother as soon as he put his faith in the Messiah. Yes, I know I've 
said that one time, and then I went back to my study and thought, well, Andrew probably knew the scripture pretty well, being a, being a Jew, because Jews really study the Old Testament scriptures. But folks, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and because of that, we can be a witness. We can make a difference. And we live our lives to please the Lord, and we can have an effect on people, even though uh, maybe you're a new Christian, you can still have an impact in the world. The great thing about new Christians is they're zealous, and they go out and they just dive in headlong, you know, and, and share and witness. And, you know, sometimes you're kind of like, wow, guy's kind of making a fool of himself. Listen, I'd rather make a fool of myself for Jesus than sit like a bump on the log and do nothing for God, you know. I've made mistakes. I remember in the old days going visiting and, you know, I was like a high pressure salesman. We were dropped off on a bus all over the city and we'd have to go to doors. And, you know, I was, always seemed to find someone with me that was more zealous than I. So we'd knock on a door and we'd stand there and contend and contend. And I realized that's not a good way to reach people. But I, I, I still look back and still wish I had as much zeal as I had then. Remember the creator in the days of thy youth, when, when you can still witness and be effective for God. Because God here, he expects us. He assumes that we're obeying his command. Now, he knows when we're not, but he talks to us as though he assumes we're going. You know, and, and tells us exactly what to do. Any comments or questions tonight? All hearts clear? Amen. Well, I guess we're, I don't, know, I don't know what time. Have you always got out at 8 or 20 till 8? I don't know. But let me know if I'm going too long. Or 10 till. It's 10 till. Yeah, I didn't know. You start at 20 to 7. Normally, I'm used to a one-hour service. And so at 20 to 8, I'm thinking, well, I should wrap it up. But uh, great time tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the mission report. Our prayer time was great. And just thank God for being here with us. Thank you for being here. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Uh, Jim Nation, dismiss us, please.